Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, I guess this is it. Yeah, we are back to work after, well, after a a very prolonged and yet uh, needed Christmas break. And it was great. And, you know, last week I know I was back on the air, but but now it feels like I'm actually back at work. Maybe another way to put that. I feel like I'm back in the groove and and here we go. So much to talk about. And and look, I have a concern because, uh, okay, I want to I want to just confess where I am coming from. I was a kid who grew up more or less glorifying war. I really thought it was cool. When my friends and I played, that's what we played every minute that we had the chance. We built model tanks and planes and we, you know, had our toy guns and everything we did. Every movie we wanted to watch had to be, you know, a war movie. Every book we checked out, oh, look, Sergeant Slaughter, there's a new book out. It was it was just part of, uh, I don't know, it was our entertainment. and That's how we tended to look at it. It was something really entertaining. And that persisted with me, you know, through much of my adolescence and on into adulthood. I remember, uh, you know, spending some time living in uh, in Oklahoma and actually became friends with a number of military personnel because I was living in areas where there were either air bases or army forts, whatever. And it wasn't until after 9-11 that the first cracks started to appear in my unshakable faith in the American military and the U.S. government, you know, being the, the biggest, baddest, you know, person on the planet and out there, you know, kicking butt for the Lord, because that's kind of how I saw it. But when I watched the run up to Iran, I'm sorry, to Iraq, good Freudian slip there, Bri. Uh, when I watched the run up to Iraq back in 2002, and 2003. It was like for the first time I was starting to recognize all of these conservative figures, the Sean Hannity's, the Rush Limbaugh's, the, the George W. Bush's and, and, and all the various hangers on throughout conservative, the conservative you know, sphere of influence. I started to realize they were just talk when it came to actually adhering to constitutional principles of government. And that was tough because at that time, it seemed like a vast majority of of Americans, if not, you know, the vast majority of my listening audience at that time was very much in favor of, hey, whatever the president says, we will wave the flag. You bet we will. Our troops are going, you know, the, the National Guard unit in, in the city where I was working at the time was activated and sent to Iraq. It was a crazy time. But I could see for the first time that there was a lot of spin that went into the narrative of why we have to take Saddam out. And it was, you know, the the criteria changed all the time. Well, you know, it it could have been that uh, he was helping with 9-11. And let's face it, people were angry. People were frightened. They were scared. They wanted to make sure nothing like this can ever happen again. But when that didn't work, well, then he's trying to get his hands on weapons of mass destruction. 
And examples would be brought up, well, didn't he gas the Kurds? I don't know. It was alleged that he did following the first Gulf War. It's alleged that he used uh, gas weapons on Iranians during the Iran-Iraq War. How do we know this? Well, we can verify it because it was the U.S. that sold him (laughs) many of those weapons. So, yeah, yeah, he had weapons of mass destruction provided by his one-time allies in the U.S. But no matter what Saddam Hussein did, no matter what movement he made to try to accommodate or to appease, you know, the, the Bush machine that was gearing up for war, it was just crystal clear. More men, more equipment, more supplies were being moved to the Middle East because, by gosh, we were going to invade Iraq no matter what. And we did. And the big difference in the invasion of Iraq in March of 2003 versus all the other times that, uh, you know, when we attacked Panama just before Christmas in 1989, when they went into Grenada in 1983, you know, the first Gulf War, I actually cheered for those things. I thought they were cool. I'd stay up late to watch TV and, you know, see if I could catch a glimpse of some of the carnage. But this time I actually understood. The U.S. government is acting the role of an aggressor. By invading a nation that never materially harmed the United States. And so that's where my skepticism really began in earnest. And, and it was probably, I don't know, maybe I'm damaged goods because at that time I also learned what it's like to be on the wrong side of public opinion when everybody's jumping on the bandwagon and everybody's saying, come on, boy, get the spirit, wave the flag, you know, and, and I couldn't do it. Probably would have been easier if I did. But my conscience was like, this isn't right. <laughs> I can't, I, I, I can't get on board with this. I think it's a huge mistake. And that's much the way that I feel as I watch the events that have been unfolding here for the last few days. You know, the, the I, I, I have to tell you this because this is probably the most troubling thing to me. I'm troubled at how easy it is to switch Americans into war fever mode. And how quickly they will set aside any semblance of principles in order to stand with the president, in order to stand with our men and women in uniform, in order to stand for the red, white, and blue. And there's a part of me that wants to believe that it's just a conditioned response. Well, this is what we do. You know, in times of trouble, we band together and we put our differences aside. And the time to talk is after our men and women are out of harm's way. But that's not how I think anymore. And so at the at the risk of, you know, I don't want to I don't want to come off as sanctimonious. I know more than you and you're dumb and I'm not. I just want you to understand that I have been in the midst of gutter patriotism in my life. I have wallowed in it. I have celebrated it, not knowing that's what it was. And I look back on it now and I think, how could I have been so blind? How could I have been duped? And the single biggest reason I can find is because I was looking for a reason to believe what I was being told. I was looking for a reason not to question the narrative that was being given me by my government or by the media that was dutifully repeating whatever they said. And so it's it's I feel that uh, that I have a duty to speak up on matters like this. 
And it's not because I feel I have a duty to dominate you and to convert you to my point of view. I don't want other people to have to continue to to wallow in the same swamp of misinformation that I did for so many years. But that is a super tough sell, especially when you're talking to people about uh, when when you're talking to people about things that involve their country, their national security. Uh, Many of us know or we have loved ones who are serving in the armed forces. We don't want to see harm come to them. And all of those things can seem like they're under attack when one questions the narrative. So let me give you an example here. One of the resources that I found um, as, as I was as I was opposing the original, well, the second go at Iraq in 2003 was uh, this incredible site called antiwar.com. Now, see, for some people, just, well, anti-war, pfft, that's probably some anti-war blog. and <laughs> Well, it is. But what I found is if you will actually consider the points of view, you will find that there's a lot of information reported there that doesn't seem to make it into mainstream U.S. media or into the, the political press releases that the Pentagon is putting out. Case in point, Scott Horton has a blog entry from yesterday. Did Iran kill 600 Americans in Iraq War II? No. Now, I'll just share with you the, a couple highlights here. He says, due to the current ubiquity of claims that Iran killed 600 Americans in Iraq War II, I figured it might be worth bringing up the fact that it is a complete and damnable lie. Now, he's not just saying, take my word for it because I was opposed to that war. He says, in the case of Petraeus's surge against Sadrist forces in Sadr City and Najaf in 2007 and 2008, Sadr was the least Iranian loyal of all the major Shiite factions. The U.S.'s favorites from Dawa and Skiri were also Iran's favorites. Sadr wanted the U.S. and Iran both out. A couple of points, the U.S. chased, uh, chased Sadr into Iran, but that was a self-fulfilling blunder, not proof they were right about him. So when Petraeus attacked, they responded not the other way around. And when they did respond with Copper Corps EFP, or Electronically Formed Projectile Bombs, they were made in Iraq by Iraqis. And then he posts a list of articles confirming this. There's at least eight, maybe more. Now, not everybody's going to want to question their beliefs here. Not everybody's going to want to dig a little deeper and see, could that be true? But if you do... I'll have that link in the show notes, and I would encourage you, check it out. Pull on that thread. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service. By the way, I'm willing to take my lumps, as I, as I did in the run-up to the Iraq War II. 801-331-8113. I know it makes people uncomfortable. I, I have limited myself from Facebook. I've stayed away from it as much as possible. I've ventured on a couple of times. And, and each time I've gone on, it's like, oh, crap. I, I make a comment, and I, I try to be diplomatic. I really do. I've, I'm way past the scorched earth mentality that, uh, that I once had when it came to arguing with strangers online. <sighs> But it still goes over like a lead balloon. 
you know, and far be it for me. I, you know, I, I don't want to force everybody. You have to agree with this. You have to think about this. But I just have a sense that there is more at stake here than whether or not uh, we are being kept safe from various bad mashes around the world. Look, if this uh, General Soleimani was really the threat that he's being portrayed to be, why is the first thing we heard about it was when he was blown up? Why is that the first that any of us have even been aware of him? And yet now people are like, well, you know, he was planning on hurting Americans. And I don't know, you know, he very well could have been. I assume when you're a general, you are in the business of planning and executing how to hurt people or kill people and break things. That's, you know, kind of your job. We have generals who do the same thing, just in case you were wondering. But my point here is none of us were threatened. Our our liberty was not at stake because of him. Our personal safety was not at stake because of him. And a very high-profile... Aggressive killing by drone strike, I don't think is going to do anything to, you know, bring some stability back to that particular corner of the world. I don't see it happening. I got a couple of articles here that I'll share with you in a little bit that uh, that shed some light on this, on what what exactly is the backstory here? Well, you know, Iran hates us and they're talking death to America. And I think they said something about wiping Israel off the map. I mean, these are these are common talking points that people have been batting about for years. But do they necessarily reflect the actual, the whole truth, or at least more of the truth, maybe with a little bit of nuance? Or is it really that black and white? Because I have a hunch it's, it's not nearly as black and white as what we're being told. And the painful truth that comes with that is we're not wearing the white hat in this case. In fact, the really painful truth may be there are no good guys involved in the hostilities here. That's the really tough part. Let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Yeah, Brian, Sam calling. Boy, Hello, what Sam. a loaded show today. Uh, <laughs> I just got to get it off my chest. I'll probably be much better by, you know, Wednesday of this week. Well, I happen to agree with you. And let's go a little deeper with this, if we could. Um involving this whole war scenario. First of all, what we have is um, people, there, we all have a sense of belonging. We want to belong to something. It feels good to belong to something. Nobody wants to feel alone, right? So that's the first part of it, okay? That's what they play on because it makes us all feel like we're a part of something and we're part of something mighty. Sure. So that's, that's the first part of the problem. second part of the problem is is um, when you start dealing with Facebook and Twitter, how many of these people out there who um, who beat up on uh, all of us out here that are um, that are are supposedly in the minority? I don't really know in the real analysis. I mean, I'm not saying there aren't some. You know, some of your older people get real offended if you um, you know you know your World War II people and stuff get offended when you start attacking the issue of the wars because you know they they in their own mind they. Um, you know, they felt like they were fighting for freedom. And the problem is we even got some people in the wars now that think that they're fighting for freedom. But the only difference is is that um, when they get over there, they find out something different. I had a conversation with a guy who was um, at one time a, a police officer here in our area who served over a desert storm. And he admitted to me exactly 
what we're talking about. He said, I was told one thing when I, was, when I went over there, but it was quite another thing after I got over there, and that's when I discovered what I was really fighting for. Wow. And so actually I had a guy admit it to me. Now, where I want to go deeper with this is, first of all, I blame the Christian community for part of this. Not all of us. Some of us are awake and we know what's going on. But I'm just saying, you know, collectively as a whole, the mainstream denominations for this, because they're the ones that push this issue of Israel. Now, the Israel that we're dealing with today is not the same Israel as the Bible talks about in the case of the Commonwealth of Israel. This is a Israel that was created by the United Nations, and it's every bit as much in the sin bin as anything else. And this is what a lot of Christians get hooked on because, uh, you know, they believe that if you don't support Israel, why, you're going against God and all this kind of stuff. Well, first of all, I didn't know that going against God, um, that that's what this was all about. So basically what they're saying is that, okay, the government of Israel could sponsor soldiers pushing ladies under buses and all kinds of other stuff, but yet somehow if we go against all of that, then we're going against God. No, I don't think so. Um, There's a big difference in supporting the Israeli government and supporting Israeli people, just like you and me, Brian. We We don't agree with the stuff that our government does, but yet we live here, and I don't want anybody associating... Uh, me with some of the stuff that our government's involved in in these wars. And uh, Ron Paul had an interesting clip that he ran during one of his election cycles. And I've got it. I got it. Uh, He eventually released it without the uh, paid for by Ron Paul 2012. You know, he got he took that off and reposted it just as a just as a clip. I ought to send it to you. It's uh, what if soldiers were to invade, say, like the state of Texas? and they were to start maiming women and children and all this kind of stuff, you know, what would happen, you know, if um, if this happened and we started sending people down there to defend these women and children, and yet more and more soldiers kept coming from other countries to um, maim women and children, and um, more and more of our Americans were dying just trying to defend these women and children. And what Ron Paul was trying to get across this is what happens when we go in these other countries. And I'll, I'll send it to you. It's a wonderful piece, and I should start putting it in my own lineup here on the station here that I run here. And uh, it underscores exactly what we're talking about right here to a T. Well, it's going to be a very interesting year, Sam. You know, we I, I, I had, uh, I had you know, some apprehensions. I think I probably talked about them before on the show about, boy, it could be an interesting year, but... You know, we get two days into the year, and holy cow, somebody somebody reached over and pushed the red button. I'm telling you. Well, this is why, like I said with my audience last night, when I was doing my broadcast, I said, you know, I said, I can't guarantee you that this year is going to be a bed of roses. I mean, if you you know, and I've worn for, for about the past two years, and we start going into New Year's, every New Year I say, you know, hang on, because it's going to be an interesting ride, and every time... Every time I've stated that, it always appears to be that way. But it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out, Brian. I mean, you just watch the trend of events that are going on. And, I, you know, but if, if people want to get past all of this stuff and want to start getting some sort of a sanity back to life, we're all going to have to start recognizing these people that are declaring these wars. We don't know these people personally. We, we just 
they're out there. We get the media bites from them. But we don't know these people personally at all. These, you know, these are, I mean, a lot of these people that are in these various positions and, and places in government are some of the biggest criminals known to man, and yet we put our faith and trust in them. Right, you know, right. We've got to shake that if we're going to start to turn this around, because if they didn't get the support, they wouldn't be doing it. Okay, so here's here's the deal, Sam. I'm coming up on break. On, um, we'll, we'll cut you yeah. loose here, but thanks thanks for your call. On the other side of the break, I am going to uh, I'm going to offer a couple of possible solutions. I actually just had somebody ask me on Facebook. So how would you extricate us from this mess in the Middle East? And remember, there will be consequences. There will be unforeseen consequences. And I thought, man, I didn't know I was the one who got us in there. But uh, what can you and I do? on an individual basis. I think I do have some answers there. Stick around. We'll talk about them next. Trusted Voices of Truth and Insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Yeah, I, I I pretty much have stuck my foot in the bear trap of uh, talking about uh, the drone strike assassination of an Iranian general in Iraq at the order of the president. And, you know, the funny thing about this is when, when you question, was that the right thing to do? It sounds different to different people's ears. I, I guess there's there's kind of a translator that that runs through. So for some people, if you say, hey, was that the right thing to do? To them, it sounds like, man, I hate Donald Trump. To others, it sounds like, gosh, I wish I was an Iranian. Death to America. And to still others, uh, let's see, what was what was the other one? Uh, no, I think those are pretty much the only two choices I was given. <laughs> oh, are you a Democrat? That was That was the other thing I was asked. Why do people defend the indefensible? For that matter, why do you jump on a bandwagon? I shouldn't say, why do you? Why do we jump on the bandwagon when the only facts we know are what's been spoon-fed to us by blow-dried, very skilled, highly paid propagandists? Now, I mentioned in the first part of the show, I, the, one, one of the, the greatest and most difficult journeys of my life, which is still underway, by the way, was slogging my way out of the swamp of misinformation. And learning to see past the narrative of what you're supposed to believe to look at what else might actually be applicable. What other data or whatever knowledge might apply to this situation. So let me put a couple cards on the table and then we're going to talk about what are some of the things you and I can do. Okay, first and foremost, what I'm about to say is going to offend some people. And and my intent, this is not a slap across the face and a challenge to pistols at dawn. It's just, I'm going to tell you where I'm coming from. This is why I can't accept whatever excuses Mike Pompeo's offering, whatever Donald Trump is tweeting at the moment, whatever the, the press is saying. The bottom line is the United States has not been a stabilizing, beneficial source in the Middle East. We've, we have uh, allowed our leaders to enact various forms of embargoes and threats and attacks and drone strikes and out-and-out invasions, none of which had anything to do with actually defending us or protecting our God-given rights. 
And to make it even worse, uh, most all of these actions were done in darkness, as opposed to done under the declaration of war that uh, the Constitution gives solely to Congress. Now, I'm going to point something out that some people may find inconvenient, but I think this says a lot. You ever notice how the only wars that, uh, that were declared by Congress were the wars that were fought to a decisive finish? Okay, good, bad, or indifferent, whether you agree with the outcome or not, the ones that Congress declared were wars that were fought to an end. There was a clear point where that's done and we're through with it. Everything that has come since World War II has been much more open-ended, much more complicated, and, and to that same degree, much less likely tied to the actual purpose for which our American government exists, and that is to keep us free. So when we hear talk about, well, you know, there, was, uh, there were people attacking the U.S. Embassy in Iraq... Because the U.S. was just minding its business one day and its humble little embassy, that, that, that humble little, uh, you know, diplomatic outpost there for some reason came under attack. No. The reason that embassy came under attack is because the U.S. went in not once but twice and subjugated the country of Iraq, caused untold suffering and death. Much of it through embargoes, by the way. I mean, let's. You want to tie some you know, or bring some of the lines together? Where do they cross here? Uh, why did Osama bin Laden? Why did he go after the twin towers? Why did he mastermind the nine eleven attacks in two thousand one? In part, it was out of a sense of retribution for five hundred thousand very young and very elderly Iraqis who died as a direct result of U.S. sanctions following the first Gulf War. Fact. He said it. This isn't just, well, you're spinning his words. He said it. That was among the reasons he gave. He also talked about unreasonable, what he saw as unreasonable support for Israel in the Middle East. I think it's pretty safe to say we have a special relationship with the Israeli government. And he was also very upset about the idea that U.S. troops were stationed on Saudi soil, which he called holy land. But one of the key reasons was because of the injustice that had been done to Iraqi citizens. Saddam Hussein didn't miss a meal. He slept in a warm bed right up until, you know, the second round of war. But his people suffered greatly. And they suffered because of U.S. policymakers. Madeleine Albright came right out when she was asked, well, what do you say? You know, we've got, uh, I think it was the Lancet Medical Journal out of Britain, they estimated 500,000 Iraqis, very young and very old, died as a result of these sanctions. What do you say to that? I think it was Leslie Stahl who asked uh, Madeleine Albright this. And Madeleine Albright's response was, we think it was worth it. Meaning it was supposed to apply pressure, you know, or have the Iraqi people apply pressure to Saddam Hussein. Maybe they'll rise up and overthrow him if they get miserable enough. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something that's very difficult for a lot of people. Put yourself in the shoes of the average Iraqi citizen. Yeah, I understand. Saddam Hussein was a royal SOB. But how would you feel if it was your grandfather who died? 
for lack of medicine or your child who starved to death for lack of proper food or proper, you know, clean water. And then on top of it all, let's just just play along for a minute. The average Iraqi citizen watches, you know, the U.S. come in as an occupying army and stay and build these huge permanent military bases, including the largest embassy compound in the world. It's also one of the most fortified embassy compounds in the world. It's a not-so-subtle way of saying, I own you, to the Iraqi people. So when they say, well, Soleimani was getting these people all riled up and they were attacking our embassy, our embassy, our sacred ground. Let's just remember the process by which that massive embassy was put there and why it was created in the way that it was created. It doesn't exactly pass the sniff test. I hear a lot of people throwing around the word terrorist. Well, you know, the guy was a terrorist. He, you know, he was he was planning to harm U.S. personnel or U.S. interests. In fact, you know, they've tried to make the case. Well, he, he provided these bombs that, that killed 100, 600 U.S. personnel. By the way, read the article. I will have links to it in the show notes. Read the article from Scott Horton. Did Iran kill 600 Americans in Iraq War II? It's not just an opinion piece. He's got the facts and figures, and he's got multiple, multiple sources backing up his contention that no, that's a false narrative, but it's one that everybody seems to be repeating. And this is the part that's going to sting. Of those U.S. personnel who were either killed or permanently maimed during their service in Iraq, if our leaders had been following the proper limited role of government, if they had been following the proper moral code of conduct between governments and not invaded by choice, a country that had never materially harmed the U.S. Those servicemen would have been safe at home or safely assigned somewhere else and would not have been sent into harm's way for illegitimate and immoral reasons. Now, I feel like I'm kind of tap dancing a little bit here on a tightrope, but I want to make it clear. I'm not blaming those service members themselves. They didn't have a lot of say in where they were sent. They took the money off the king's drum. They became the king's men. They go where the king sends them, so to speak. But the people who sent them there have blood on their hands. And as painful as that truth may be to consider, none of those casualties would have happened if our leaders were actually following what proper government should do. And proper government acts in a defensive manner. It's never the aggressor. Preemptive war, sorry, it's not moral. It never has been. It never will be. That's why we went into Iraq the second time. They're claiming that this was a preemptive attack on this guy who might have been planning some kind of attack on us. And by the way, he was a state player. This wasn't some shadowy, non-state player, you know, terrorist figure. This was a fully recognized guy with diplomatic status. Yeah, it just gets, it gets worse. So I'm not trying to rob you of your joy, okay? I'm not trying to be the buzzkill, but I'm saying there's more to consider here that has to do with right and wrong and less to do with them versus us. Your enemies uh, may be closer than you think. 
Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. And by the way, I'm sorry. I really am. I'm, I know I am just going off. I'm, I'm worse than the drunk uncle at Thanksgiving. Ah, another thing I'll tell you about those Democrats. <sighs> but I, I, I have been wanting to get this off my chest. And yes, I do feel better <laughs> for having said something. By the way, you can have your say as well. 801-331-8113. If there's anything you take away from this, if you just if you reject my my word salad of all my objections as to to why I can't get enthused about to, you know a drone strike blowing up some Iranian general on the other side of the world. It's it's just simply this: the narrative that you and I are being fed is incomplete at best and utter falsehood at worst. It's baloney, and and the scary thing about that is. It, it commits us. It commits our children. It's, it's stuff that's being done in our names. I think back on the, the people who died on 9-11. Nearly 3,000 of our fellow Americans, and I don't know, there might have been a few uh, foreign citizens that uh, died in the Twin Towers as well. They died because someone was so fed up and so desperate and so irrationally angry that they wanted to strike back in a way that uh, that would make a huge splash and get our attention. And unfortunately, that put a target on the backs of thousands of innocent people. All the policymakers who had, you know, had engaged in the things that, that supposedly enraged Osama bin Laden, the sanctions against Iraq, the um, unfair favoritism shown towards towards Israel in the Middle East, the stationing of U.S. troops on Saudi soil, all the decision makers, the people who were actually responsible for any of those things, well, they were safe. They were somewhere else. They, they never felt any discomfort. But it was innocent Americans that were burnt to a crisp in a field in Pennsylvania that died by the thousands in the Twin Towers. And that died in the Pentagon. And given just how destabilized things have been, not just in the Middle East, but in, in terms of, uh, you know, China, Russia, and, and various other scenarios of, of you know, the, the, the power struggles that are going on, both economically as well as militarily. I don't know. You know, it's like a friend pointed out, you know, what? You think a world war is going to start just because one guy was assassinated? And the, the response is me laughing in World War One. That's exactly what set off World War One. So here's a question for you. What do we do? I don't have power. I'm not the president. You're not the president. What do you do? I think this is where you and I have the absolute duty to to root out as much of the dysfunction in our society as we can, starting with ourselves. You see where I'm going with this, right? No, it's not going to change everything at once. It, uh, it may not even change anybody outside of your immediate circle of influence. It may change nobody but you, but that's enough to start. Jacob Hornberger had a great article. Um, this was last week. The cause of America's dysfunctionality. And I think he nails it because the biggest cause of our dysfunctionality, soaring suicide rates, especially among young people, the uh, massive drug addiction and alcoholism, widespread violence, including irrational mass killings. 
stems from a detachment from correct principles. Now, that doesn't mean Republican principles or Democrat principles. It's it's he says among the things to consider would be the replacement of America's founding economic monetary and governmental system with a different system. That may be at the root of why there's so much dysfunction. We've taken things that were proven to work. Individual liberty, private property rights, respect for the rights of the individual, respect for freedom of conscience, limits on government power. And we've tossed them out of expediency or out of a desire for just more power or maybe out of fear that somebody else might have an advantage. Hornberger's point is there were good founding principles in America. There were also bad ones, too. Among the bad ones, needless to say, slavery, denial of women's rights. So he says it was a good thing that America abandoned its bad founding principles. But there were also good founding principles, and it was the abandonment of those principles that has to be considered a major cause of many of the woes that America is undergoing today. So let's walk through a few of these. He says, let's consider those good founding principles that were abandoned in favor of the system that we live under today. Number one, Americans were free to keep everything they earned. You didn't know that, did you? No income tax returns, no IRS, no rushing to the post office on April 15th, no withholding, no payroll taxes, no threats of audits, liens, garnishments, or criminal prosecution for failure to pay income taxes. Whatever people earned or received, they kept 100% of it. Number two, Americans were free to decide for themselves what to do with their own money. No mandatory charity, including Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, farm subsidies, corporate bailouts, or foreign aid. And charity was entirely voluntary. No one was forced to take care of anyone. No federal welfare departments and agencies. Number three, no drug laws. Americans were free to ingest whatever they wanted, no matter how harmful or destructive, without fear of being punished for it by the government. Notice they weren't free from the consequences. It's just government wasn't arbitrarily saying, "Eh, you can't do that, I'll throw you in a cage. Number four, no immigration controls. Except for a cursory tuberculosis or mental health examination at Ellis Island, the borders were open to the free movement of foreigners into the United States. Number five, no minimum wage laws, very few economic regulations. Economic enterprise was free of federal governmental management and control. No federal regulatory departments and agencies. Number six, no public schooling systems. With the exception of Massachusetts in the 1850s, there were no compulsory school attendance laws at the state and local level. No federal involvement or subsidization of or subsidization of education. The matter of education was left largely to the free market. Number seven, no gun control. That means no gun registration, no background checks. Well, communities sometimes imposed gun restrictions. Americans were free to keep and bear arms without federal governmental control or infringement. Number eight, there was no federal reserve. Fiat or paper money or monetary inflation, inflation rather, or debasement of the currency. The Constitution called into existence a monetary system in which gold coins and silver coins were the official money of the country. And the states were expressly, expressly prohibited rather, from making anything but gold and silver coins legal tender. Number nine. You knew this one was coming. There was no national security state. 
foreign military bases, or foreign interventionism. The Constitution brought into existence a limited government republic. No Pentagon, military-industrial complex, CIA, NSA, or FBI. No wars of aggression except the Mexican War in 1848. Undeclared wars, coups, state-sponsored assassinations, foreign military bases, foreign aid, war on terrorism, war on communism, or alliances with foreign dictatorships or other regimes. Number 10, there was no denial of due process of law or trial by jury. No unreasonable searches and seizures. No cruel and unusual punishments. No coerced confessions. Whenever federal officials targeted a person for federal or for criminal prosecution, rather, the accused was guaranteed due process, trial by jury, and other civil liberties. Why do you suppose we turned our backs on these things? I submit to you it's because we forgot. Jacob Hornberger says these were the founding principles that caused our American ancestors to consider themselves the freest people in history. Moreover, he says not only did America become the country with the highest standard of living in history, which was why poor people were flooding into America from foreign lands, but it also became the most charitable society in history, entirely on a voluntary basis. Those were the good founding principles that were abandoned by later generations of Americans in favor of what is commonly known today as a welfare state, warfare state way of life. Now, he says, ironically, even though they live under an opposite type of system from that of their American ancestors, today's Americans are themselves convinced that they live lives of freedom. That sentiment is best manifested by the eagerness of modern day Americans to thank imperial troops serving in faraway lands for protecting our freedoms by killing and destroying people over there. Johann Goethe wrote, no, none are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe they are free. Jacob Hornberger says, I submit that psychological denial of reality with respect to freedom, as well as the abandonment of America's good founding principles, are the root cause of the dysfunctional nature of American society today. So here's the good news. You and I can do something about that, even if it's just on the individual basis. Let's not only learn what those principles are, let's live them. And like the founders, put our trust in our creator. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.